Hebrews and chapter 4, and beginning in verse 12. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the Word of God. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the very word of God. We ask now that you would write its truths on our heart and be glorified in this. Give grace to everyone who hears your word today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. It's hard to think of nothing. Have you ever tried it? We're space-bound, we're time-bound, finite creatures, and I don't think I've ever really grasped the concept of nothing. I've tried a lot, but sometimes when I think I've grasped it, I think of blackness, and blackness is a thing, not a no thing. Blackness is a thing. It's something rather than nothing. So let me try once again. Here we go. There was a time before time. And right there I've failed because I can't help myself. My finite limitations mean that when I think of a time before time, I've messed things up already because there wasn't any time before time. But I can't do anything else. In biblical language we have this phrase, in the beginning. Find it in Genesis 1 verse 1 and John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, when there was nothing, nothing but God, nothing but God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when there was nothing apart from Him. By the way, the atheist has a conundrum because they believe, as atheists, that nothing times no one equals everything. It's much more plausible to have this as an idea, a concept. Nothing plus God equals everything. But when there was nothing, God said, let there be light. Literally, light be. And light was. Light came because God spoke. In fact, at the first tick of the clock, when it occurred, God had spoken, and everything you and I see, the heavens and the earth, that's a lot. When you think of the heavens, it's incredible, it's impossible for the human mind to fathom, but all of that was created by the Word of God. And from everything on the planet, from the biggest hole, like the Grand Canyon, to the largest and the highest and the uh, most outrageous summit of Mount Everest, everything has been created by the Word of God. I wonder if you believe that. And God is a speaking God. That's the reason everything exists. God spoke. He didn't have to, but He did. We read these words in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In other words, as far back as you can go, the Word was with, pros, face to face, 
with the Father. And then we read these words, all things were made through him, through the word. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him, that's the word, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Darkness cannot be sustained when light appears. If you have a room and it's been full of darkness, even if it's been dark for 10 years, you don't need a vacuum to get darkness out. You just need to turn the light on. Light exposes darkness. The scripture says that the entrance of his word gives light. What a hope that is. We have people, I'm sure you have people in your family, in your friend set that maybe doesn't know Christ. But light can come by the power of the Holy Spirit, and while there may have been darkness not only in their lives, but in their ancestors, they may have been caught up in some religious cult. The entrance of his word gives light, and they see Christ because God gives light through his word. As we come to today's passage, it comes in the context of a lengthy warning. The message is this, when you hear God's word, Don't harden your hearts. Instead, believe and enter into rest. And there's a solemn warning against unbelief or disobedience, which literally means a refusal to be persuaded. It's a moral sin. And those guilty of this sin, God says of them, I will make sure, I swear, in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Those are strong words indeed, but that's the context in which we find ourselves. And as we start verse 11, we encounter the word for. And it means that in the light of all this, this is now the result. This is what you should be understanding. For the word of God. Let me just stop right there. And as we enter into verses 12 and 13, I want you to hold on to your seats. We're going to take a journey today. The author reveals... In these two verses, what God's Word is and what it does. And it's breathtaking. wonder if you understand these things. By the end of this sermon, hopefully you will. And for those who already understand it, may this truth be absolutely etched forever on our hearts. As we take this journey, the first thing we understand is the Bible, God's Word, is divine revelation. Look at verse 12. For the Word of God is... Go back to chapter 1 of Hebrews, just a few pages before. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke. Notice those words. God spoke. Do you believe in a speaking God? Not a vague God who gives generalities, but a specific God who speaks and speaks everything he wishes to say. That's what a Bible is. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken in a different way. He has spoken. He has spoken. God spoke, verse 1. He has spoken, verse 2, to us by his Son. And here it is, the ultimate word. Reject him and there's no more hope. He's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. This is a testament Also to John chapter 1, isn't it? Jesus, the Son, He is the creator of the world. All things are made by Him and for Him. So, God is a speaking God. His Word is His self-disclosure. He didn't have to reveal Himself. He could have simply given us creation, 
That tells us something about him, according to Romans chapter 1. It tells us of his invisible attributes. It tells us something of him. It tells us of his existence. But we cannot be saved by merely understanding creation, by watching the most amazing sunsets, by looking at nature. For salvation, we need to hear the message of good news. And that requires not natural or general revelation, but specific. General revelation is wonderful, but specific revelation is that which is particular to God speaking. And the Bible is divine in its origin. Can you say amen to that? Let me hear it again. Amen. Amen. All Scripture, not some of it, not the parts we like, not merely the parts that move us. All Scripture is God-breathed. Theonoustos of divine uh, origin. It comes from the mouth of God. Francis Schaeffer once wrote a book entitled, God is There and He is Not Silent. I wonder if you believe that. The Bible is God speaking to us. To quote Steve Lawson, the Bible is God speaking to us. It's not an audible voice, it's much louder than that. I like that. And so, to understand that phrase, the Word of God, we're understanding this. To encounter the Word is to encounter God. God and His Word are one. Therefore, when you hear the Word, don't harden your heart. Because it's more than a preacher's voice, it's the voice of God. It's God Himself speaking to us. And true preaching, that which comes from the text of Scripture, is not merely a mortal man addressing us. As you notice today... I'm standing behind an elevated pulpit. There's some thought behind that historically. It's not what you might think. The pulpit is elevated not because some man thinks he way too much about himself, but because of what is taking place when the Word of God is proclaimed. Keep your place in Hebrews. Go back to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 8 and I'm just going to delve briefly into this. The reason for that is if we don't, we'll be there all day and we'll never get back to Hebrews. It is a wonderful, wonderful chapter. Just before the book of Psalms is the book of Job. Before that, we find other books like Esther, then Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 8. I'm simply going to read this. Verse 1. The word of God had been lost to the people. They found it. And God summoned, through his leaders, the people to hear it. Been many, ta- many days, many years, without the people of God hearing the word of God. That's a famine, ladies and gentlemen. And I believe there's a famine of the word of God in our day. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. Nothing to do with Mr. Nixon. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. I love that. Bring the book. That's the cry of the true sheep of God. Bring the book. You're coming on Sunday, preacher. You better be bringing the book. Bring the book. There it is. Bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. Kind of a lengthy service, but there we go. 
in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. They eliminated distractions. They were attentive. They wanted to hear. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood a number of people with some unusual names. <laughs> verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. Verse 4 talks about a wooden platform that was constructed, made especially for the purpose. It was set aside for the purpose of the reading and the hearing of God's word. Verse 5 tells us that the platform was elevated. Ask yourself why. I think the obvious answer is so that there would be no distractions. If you're all on the same level and the preacher's on the same level, Mrs. Jones' hat can make you not see the preacher. But when the preacher's elevated, you can look beyond the hat to the preacher. And that way, you get the Word of God in the ear gate as well as the eye gate. Some people who are hard of hearing in a physical way, they can lip read and they can see now the words that are being spoken and follow along. And so it was helpful to everybody. I'm sure there were people who were hard of hearing in that crowd. And so that was the reason. Not because the preacher was all that, but because the Word of God was all that. Amen. Amen. The preacher must be seen and heard because he's a herald with the Word of God in his mouth. And verse 5 continues on to say that the people stood for the hearing of God's word. Oh, that's why we do what we do. Yeah, this is not something that's commanded here. There's no Bible verse that says you must have a wooden pulpit, uh, you must have it elevated, and you must have the people stand for the reading of God's word. There's nothing in the way of prescription there. God doesn't command it, but there's some great principles that arise from this text. It's descriptive rather than prescriptive. Noah, we're told to do exactly that, but it outlines a principle, a holy principle, which is this. Whatever form you have, make sure the preacher is seen and heard and that the people reverence the Word. That's right in the assembly of God. The Word must be elevated in the sight and hearing of the people. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 4. Some of you will be leaving today saying, oh, you might as well say it now. Let's do it. Oh, there we go. You feel good now, don't you? Hebrews chapter 4. For the word of God is, the next word is living. The word order in the original Greek puts it in what is called the emphatic position. It's a way of bringing emphasis to something. Just as we would underline something or put an exclamation uh, point uh, beside a word or make it bold or underline it. In the ancient world, there was a number of ways they would emphasize it. Some, is, uh, some ways are the ways of repetition. Here it is to front load that word, put it at the start of the verse. And that's exactly how it reads in the original language. Put into English, it reads like this. Living for the word of God is. Living for the Word of God is. 
The Bible is the living Word of God. The Bible is in no need of life. It is alive. It is alive and it gives life. Just as the entire universe is here because of the Word of God, God's Word has power within itself and life within itself to give life where there was only death. A man once came up to us, he sprawled and was seeking to give him a compliment, said, you make the Bible come alive. He replied, well, thanks for the sentiment, but actually it's the other way around. It's not me that makes the Bible come alive. It's the Bible that makes me come alive. I like that. That's so true. Living for the Word of God is. I wonder if we could say that out loud together. Living for the Word of God is. Next word is and active. Next two words, and active. The original word comes into English as our word, energetic. The Word of God is alive, it's living, and it's energetic. It's active, it's powerful, it's got energy, and it's always at work. It's never having a rest day. You might be not getting much out of your reading of the Word, but analyze your heart, not the Word. The Word is always alive. The Word is always living. The the Word is always energetic. Remember the story of a man witnessing to a friend and came to a verse he was wanting to share with the man who was not a believer, a friend of his, and said, Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and the man interrupted him and said, That's enough of that. Would you shut that stuff up? I don't want to hear it. And so he didn't share the rest of the verse. The rest of the story is for the next two days, the man was hounded by Romans 10 verse 9, even half of the verse. And two days later, he called the friend and said, look, you you gave me half a verse. I can't get it out of my head. Um, Can you finish the verse for me? And the man finished the verse. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And the End of the story is the man was converted. Do you know God doesn't need 18 passages of Scripture to reach the heart? He can reach them with half a verse. Hallelujah. That encourages me in evangelism. I don't always have to get everything right, nor do you. Just get the Word of God to people, and by the Holy Spirit, even half a verse can rattle their heads for two days. Man heard the word and came to Christ. The word of God is energetic, ladies and gentlemen. It's active, it's powerful. It never returns to God void. It always accomplishes that which God wishes it to do. Do you understand that? Either for mercy and conversion, or else the opposite of that, a hardening. It always accomplishes. Now, God has many elect people who hear the gospel 28 times before they're converted. But on that 28th time, God says, this is it. You're coming home. Come on, boy. So it is. It always accomplishes. It never returns to him void. And it's only when we understand biblical theology do we grasp the thought of that. It always accomplishes God's mission. C.H. Spurgeon said this, the same sun which melts hardens, excuse me, the same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. What's the condition 
of your heart. As you're hearing the word, is there now a tenderness to the word or is there a hardening taking place? Next phrase we read in the text is, are these words sharper than any two-edged sword? So it's living, it's energetic, it's active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. The Word of God is the sharpest instrument. That's what's being conveyed here. It's the ultimate instrument. It's the sharpest blade. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Sharper than anything that can be formed by man. I believe the phrase, any two-edged sword, refers to the idea that it cuts both ways. It can harden, but it can heal. It can bring mercy or it can bring judgment. It can convict, it can comfort, it can heal, it can harden, it can save, and it can damn. It's been well said, the Word of God comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. Do you realize this? There's nothing dull about the Word of God. There's no dull part of the book. When you understand how God has used the Word of God in history, It's not that there are only eight verses God can use to convert anyone. It's razor sharp. It's not a dull book. Every bit of it's sharp. So we've seen two things already about what the Word of God is. It's living. It's powerful. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Now we see a number of things that it does. It has piercing power. Look at this. Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. The idea here is that when it pierces, it's not a superficial cut. Not something that is just a flesh wound. It goes wherever it needs to go. That's what the Word of God does. Soul and spirit. Joints and marrow. There are many pages that you could read about what that could possibly mean. I believe best scholarship would say this. It's all figurative language to speak of it goes wherever is needed. Whatever is needed for the hardest man, the hardest woman, the boy that is tender towards God seemingly but still has a stony heart, interested maybe, but wherever we are on the spectrum, we've got stony hearts towards God till God does a divine operation, cuts out the heart of stone puts in a heart of flesh that beats to know Christ. His true gospel. Nothing else can do that. Shakespeare can't. Name the man who might write in our day, doesn't matter. Nothing of eternal significance happens when we read the words of men. But when we read the words of God, God is at work. The idea is this. Whatever the master surgeon requires wherever the master surgeon needs to go. God and his word. God, by the means of his word, cuts all the way to the deepest recesses of the soul. Nothing is outside. Not only the gaze of God, but the ability of God to get there. Nothing. Nothing. There's no area that God's word cannot penetrate. The heart of the problem, ladies and gentlemen, in our society is the problem of the heart. And God's word is the remedy. I wonder if you believe that. Saul was a persecutor of the church, became the apostle Paul. Why? God says, 
you're coming home by the word of God. Augustine, or Augustine, depending on how you might say his name, was an immoral man filled with lust until God got him by the word in the book of Romans. John Bunyan was a hard, hard man with a filthy potty mouth, author of Pilgrim's Progress, converted by the word of God. A young lad called John Samson had a father who was a wife-beating preacher, had no interest in the things of God, but God's word penetrated and gave him a desire for something he had no desire for. No matter how hard, no matter how it looks, God's word can penetrate, it can pierce. By means of that word, God fulfills his holy will. God can turn God-haters into God-lovers in a single moment. Just as God said, let there be light, light be. So 2 Corinthians 4 says, God has shined in our hearts to give us a knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's as if he has stood at the tombstone of our spiritual life and said, out, I say, let there be light. And light comes and for the first time we see the beauty and the treasure of Christ and we want him the rest of our lives and for eternity. And before that we had no interest. As we move on, we see these words, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That word discerning, or in some translations, judging, the word that comes to us in English is the word critique. It means exactly that, to analyze. And the idea is this. We might be fooling others. We might try to fool ourselves, but God's word sees right through it. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You might be saying one thing, but your heart says another. God's word will get to that. It will penetrate it. It will pierce through all the religious phoniness. Verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight. I find that interesting as you read this passage. One thing that stands out to me and has always stood out to me is when we're reading of the word of God, you would expect in verse 13 to find these words, and no creature is hidden from its sight. But we read these words, his sight. Why is that? The Bible's just a book, isn't it? No, it's a book, but it's more than a book. And to encounter the word of God is to encounter the God of the word. Nothing is hidden from his, the word of God's sight. Because God and his word are one. And God's word exposes, completely exposes. And that's the next phrase. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him. Him being the word of God. That phrase, or the word naked, means to strip down. It means what we think it means. It means to be naked. In other words, there's no hiding place. There's nowhere we can run to. Nothing to hide behind. It's all out in the open before the Word of God. And the verdict is in. God's Word analyzes and He knows the true condition of your and my soul. We are exposed and laid bare. That's what some translations read in the ESV. It says all are naked and exposed. Naked, laid bare. It's a graphic picture. That phrase, laid bare, it means to seize by the throat. That's very graphic. It means to 
lay bare the throat in order to slay an animal, usually in a sacrificial way. That's an aggressive thing. And the Word of God is an aggressive instrument. It accomplishes. It lays bare the throat and makes the cuts. Everything's exposed to Him. He sees through all of our religious lies and falsehoods. Next phrase, to whom we must give account. Again, eyes of Him. To whom we must give account. In encountering God, we encounter the Word. In encountering the Word, we encounter God. And the Word of God makes us accountable. That's the idea. The Word of God binds the conscience. When I was in the charismatic sector of the church, I had the mistaken idea that God was speaking between my ears. But never could I say with the authority of reading Isaiah or Jeremiah, something that happened between my ears carries the same kind of weight. I cannot say, God has given me this thought, I believe it's the word of God, and you are now accountable to it. I could do that with the Bible. I can't do that with what happens between my ears. And when God speaks, he speaks with all his authority. It's not like he's speaking at 30% authority today. Come back Tuesday, there might be more power going on. Now the word of God is the word of God and only the word of God. The reformers referred to this concept as sola scriptura. Only the Bible is the word of God. Doesn't matter what the Pope says, doesn't matter what the bishop says, doesn't matter what the priest says, doesn't matter what you say, it matters what God says. Let God be true and every man a liar. That's what God says. We're accountable. That phrase, sola scriptura, though it was not born in a little city called Worms or town in Germany, spelt W-O-R-M-S, In English, we would just say worms, but if you went to Germany and said worms, they'd look at you strange. Worms is how you say it. And in Worms, Martin Luther was summoned in April of 1521 to recount of his books. They were laid out before him, and to cut a long story short, he was asked, do you recount? Do you recant of these writings? All we're asking from you is one word, revoco. In Latin, I revoke, I recount, I recant all things. I turn away and say, I repudiate them. And Martin Luther, the second day, he was asked to do this. First, he just asked for more time. Second day, he came out with the most amazing speech when he said, unless I'm convinced by sacred scripture or by evident reason, I will not and I cannot recant For my mind, my conscience is held captive by the word of God. And to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God, help me. In German, here stehe ich. Ich kann nichts anders. Gott, help mir. With those words, Reformation was launched in Germany. And the idea was this. Only the scripture has the right to bind the conscience. Nothing else, no one else. But because God has spoken, we are now responsible and accountable to Him. He's spoken, He's declared His will. He's not been fuzzy about this. He's spoken with clarity and we are now accountable. Scripture alone can bind the conscience. I might want to do this, but I know now what God wants of me. 
I must come under his authority. And to come under his authority is to come under the authority of his word. Not some vague concept, not some religious feeling. That's why in our services we're not trying to create some kind of atmosphere that might move you because by Tuesday you might be in a different place with someone with better music, different kind of music who might move you in another direction. Our concept is this. We're born again by means of the Word of God. Let the Word of God go forth. Let it penetrate. Let it cut the heart. And let God do what He wants to do. Preacher, bring the book. Preacher, preach the Word. And may God give His life as we hear it. Nothing else can do it. No poetry of man. No elocution. No articulation. No great pulpit style. Nothing can take the place of the Word of God. And if the preacher in this pulpit is not preaching the Word of God, let him be banished to some netherland, but never step in the pulpit again. This is the place where the Word of God shall be heralded. And heralded. May the herald of God's Word stand before the people with his knees shaking, knowing that it might be the very last time he preaches, knowing the ramifications that he might die before the sermon's over because people don't always want to hear what they are saying. But he stands before God and the people, under God, under the authority of God, and said, Lord, I'm going to preach this in season. That's when they like it. And out of season, when they don't like it. I'm going to stay at my post. No matter what the response is, my job is to stay at my post, herald the word, and see what God will do with his book. Amen. Unless I'm convinced by sacred scripture or by evident reason, I will not, I cannot recant. Only scripture can bind my conscience. Christian, unsheath the sword. Ephesians 6 verse 17 The Bible says this, the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God. Let's forsake all other blades. They're blunt. I quoted Martin Luther later in his life, the man most used of God in the Reformation, certainly in Germany, although he affected other nations too, reflected on the entire Protestant Reformation where entire countries came under the sway of the Word of God him being the principal man that God used. Here's what he actually wrote. He said, take myself as an example. I opposed indulgences with all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer, with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. End of quote. John Calvin, who was God's man in Geneva, just a little bit after Luther, once wrote this, the Bible is the scepter by which the heavenly king rules his church. So what do we do with it? Do we make apologies? Well, we're going to read the Bible. I hope that's okay. (laughs) Charles Spurgeon said this, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend the lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose. The lion will defend itself. 
Pastor, what's the vision of King's Church? What will King's Church look like should God bless the work? Five years from now, ten years from now, generation from now. Here's the answer. More of the same. That's it. Well, aren't you going to tell us about the color of the carpet in the sanctuary? I'm not really interested. We'll get the ladies to decide that. They're always better than the men. But we just might build an elevated pulpit with a little bit of wood. Get a man of God up here. It may not be me. But that man, should he be called of God, will preach the word. So what would it look like? More of the same. More word-filled, spirit-filled preachers and teachers. Do you know to be Holy Spirit-filled means that you'll not so much talk about the Holy Spirit, but the Jesus who the Holy Spirit wants to glorify. Be preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in every sermon. There'll be more conversions, more hungry disciples of Christ growing in the word. More parents equipped and equipping their children to bring their children up in the nurture and the admonition, the instruction of the word. More godly elders, more deacons living by and trained by the word of God. The vision is that there would always be sheep food available. Nothing else served. More home groups fellowshipping around the word. More avenues to dispense the word. The word going out on the streets. The word going out at the killing places, the abortion mills. The word going out in written form. Audio, video, using the latest technology. A well-taught congregation. Right understanding of the truth of God's word, law and gospel in every sermon. The Lord tells us what to do and then as sinners leads us to Christ because we are never able to do all that God tells us to do. We need law and gospel in every sermon. A well-shepherded church. Well, can you be more specific? What color will the walls be? I don't care. Probably white so we can see the preacher rather than the darkened thing and have the lights turned down low. This is not a concert. This is a place where the Word of God can be seen, where you can look at your Bible and see it, not have to have a phone with a light on. I want you looking at the Word. I want the preacher preaching the Word. A well-shepherded church means a well-fed church and a guarded church. A guarded church? Yeah, the sheep are guarded. The elders on the lookout for wolves. John Calvin said this, the pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. The scripture supplies him, the scripture supplies him with the means of doing both. I wonder, have you seen that vision? It's very simple, it's pretty ordinary. I wish and I pray that every gospel preaching church will come to do this and the great News is across our land and across this world, God is raising up many like-minded churches that just have a people and leaders who want exactly this, more of Jesus, more of the Word, more right understanding of the Word. Let the Word go forth in power. Amen. 
Have you seen the vision? Can you join your hands to it? I'm giving my life for this. How about you? It's worth living for. It's worth dying for. Christ and the people he loves. Jesus still loves the church. I encourage you to pray for it, the church. Pray for it, the vision. Give towards it. Work towards it, whatever it takes. Sometimes I'm not feeling that great. I haven't got too much sleep and Sunday comes and it comes whether you like it or not. Sometimes there's been a call at some ungodly hour of the day and you might call it day but it looks like night and you respond and you have had 45 minutes sleep and it's like the NFL. In the NFL, the coach doesn't go up to the team players and say, are you all feeling good? Uh, That sprain you have, Andy, has it gone? Um, uh, Do you feel well enough to play? Hey, if you haven't got a bone sticking out of your body, get out on that field. Ladies and gentlemen, this is far more important than that. And you are more important than that. Every one of you. You're valuable. You're precious. And the most precious thing you could ever hear is the word of God. Whatever it takes, Lord, give us men, true men, true women, boys, and girls, and dare I pray it, a new reformation. Back to the Word of God. The Word preached in season and out of season. Raspberries, strawberries, they're either in season or out of season, right? That means preach it at all times. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the most important enterprise on earth. Silicon Valley can look down on us. Hollywood can look down at us. But in the eyes of God, you, the people of God, are the most precious commodity on earth. The sheep Jesus died for. Oh God, send us reformation. Use us much for your name, for your glory. Back to the text, ladies and gentlemen. This is our charge to preach this word. Why? For the word of God. Living for the word of God is. And active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And the message of this book is this. God, though we had violated all that is holy and we had sinned against God, he still loved this world and in the person of his son was born of a virgin who lived a flawless, perfect life before his father. And on the cross, he took our place as the substitute lamb and bore our sins in his body on the tree. 
Three days later, after his death, by horrendous crucifixion, he rose again from the dead and is now at the place of all authority in this universe, commands all people everywhere to repent and believe in him, and anyone who does has eternal life now and forever. What a message. Simply trust Christ. Living for the word of God is. Living for the word of God is. And should God use us, we, me, you, at King's Church, should he really use us? May we, like Luther, say, we did nothing. The word did it all. Let's pray. Father, we just are amazed and aghast at the splendor and power of your word. You shake entire nations by it, just as you made all creation by it. Lord, give us boldness to preach it, and give us hearts that would wish to obey it. May you be glorified in Jesus' name. As we pray this, Lord, send a new reformation to this land. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.